You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. Father in heaven, we thank you. I thank you, Lord. I thank you that now, as we spend time in your word, that you're going to speak to us. You're so faithful to do it, Lord. You promised that when your word goes forth from your, your book, from your throne, that it accomplishes the purpose that you send it forth for. And Lord, it's in that confidence that we rest here this morning. We have every expectation that you're going to speak to our hearts. So speak to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to the book of Acts, chapter 2, starting at verse 37, we're coming to the end portion of this marvelous, amazing sermon that the Apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost just a few weeks after Jesus rose from the dead. You know, we we know the chronology a little bit together, don't we, right? Jesus was crucified. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus spent some 40 days in the presence of his disciples, proving to them beyond the shadow of any doubt that he actually was risen from the dead, that it wasn't some illusion, that it wasn't some phantom. And, And when that was thoroughly established and he imparted to them the ministry that he needed to impart to them, then he ascended to heaven. And some 10 days after his ascension to heaven, the day of Pentecost came. And when the day of Pentecost came, it came with power upon those early Christians. There was about 120 of them gathered together in an upper room. And as they sought God, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. And it was associated with some unusual phenomenon, right? The, the, the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Something that appeared to be like flames of fire above each head. And, and then the spontaneous ability to, to worship God in languages that they had never spoken in before. And, and this attracted quite a bit of attention. And when the attention was attracted, this great multitude, I believe right there near the temple courts... Peter began to preach to them. And as we saw in some of the past weeks, Peter preached a powerful sermon to them. He preached a sermon to them based thoroughly on an Old Testament understanding of what was happening right there in front of their eyes with this strange phenomenon, but then also what God was doing in His eternal plan in sending Jesus and sending Him to die for our sins and raising Him from the dead. And Peter just applied it in a powerful way. Let's start at verse 36. This is the the end of his message, he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And I can just imagine, Peter, after giving such a bold statement, maybe he did what I've done sometimes in the pulpit. You say something and you say it with just, I don't know, a, a boldness that just seems to come upon you. And then you pause for just a minute and you say, I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> I mean, did Peter really call out those thousands? He was speaking to thousands of people. Did he just call them all out right now and say, This Jesus, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead and exalted. I mean, what a bold thing to say. So I wouldn't blame Peter at all if after he said that, he's thinking, Oh, what did I just say? How's this going to turn out? But look at the response. This is the glorious response. Would I say a radical response? 
from that, that huge crowd. Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Now this was obviously a very significant work of the Holy Spirit. I want you to think of the work of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And sometimes we think, okay, the work of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, that was with the sound of the rushing mighty wind. Well, sure, that was there. The, the work of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, that was with the flames of what appeared to be fire above each head. That was a work of, yes, that was a work of the Holy Spirit. Oh, the work of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, I know what it was. It was their ability to worship God in a spontaneous language that they had never known before. That was the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, it's true, it was. Oh, no, 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 the real work of the Holy Spirit, that, that, was, that was in Peter, as Peter preached with a boldness and an anointing that he had never seemed to have before in all the ministry that we saw him before. That was the Holy Spirit. It's true, that was the Holy Spirit as well. But friends, wouldn't you say that perhaps the most remarkable work of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was what he did in the hearts of those who heard that message? I'm very aware of that. I'm very aware that, that I believe that what I have to say to you on a Sunday, on a Wednesday, whatever opportunity I have to teach, I'm very aware that what I have to say to you, that's important. And I believe that God wants to use the words in this book and the words that I say, but I also know this. I know that there is a powerful work of the Holy Spirit that goes on independently of what I say. He's working in your heart. He's speaking to your heart. He's moving in your life. You know why? Because, well, we prayed that it would be so. We've asked God to do just that work. And God is faithful to do that. And this was a very powerful work happening by the presence of the Holy Spirit there. It put everything into the day of Pentecost into perspective. This was the work that God really wanted to accomplish. And we see here something that is remarkable, and we've seen it other places in the Bible, and we've seen it other places in the history of God's work. You could say this, that in normal seasons of Christian's work, the evangelist seeks the sinner. And that's a good thing, right? It's a good thing for the evangelist to seek the sinner. But in these times of revival or awakening, things change and the sinner seeks the evangelist. And that's pretty much what you have right here in Acts chapter 2. This is one of those great seasons of God's work. And how did they describe it? I love the description there in verse 37. They were cut to the heart. That's a good way of describing the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what that's like in your life? Have you ever been cut to the heart by the Holy Spirit? Where it, it feels like there is a dagger going into your chest. Whoa! And it's painful, but it's good all at the same time. Now, I don't know. I suppose that it's possible that there's some people here. You don't know what I'm talking about. I pray that God would tell you what I'm talking about. I pray that he'd show you. Not because I want to hurt you with this cut to the heart, but this cut to the heart is really the beginning of the healing and what God wants to do in your life. They understood, yes, we're guilty of this. We did have a hand in putting the Son of God to death. We knew that we have to do something in response to this. So being cut to the heart, they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter responded to them, verse 38, then Peter said to them, Repent 
And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. I think this is remarkable. What did the crowd ask Peter? What shall we do? And Peter responded to that question by saying, you need to repent and be baptized. I think Peter had to be very pleasantly amazed, right? Wasn't he very happy that the crowd didn't start chanting, crucify him to Peter, right? Isn't that what happened just a few weeks before when they crucified Peter's master, Peter's savior? Did, Did Peter have any real strong confidence to expect that it would be any different for him? But no, he saw that God did a remarkable work in the hearts and the minds of these hearers and that they respond and say, what shall we do? And Peter gave them something to do. Now that, that means that there's something you need to do if you want to receive God's salvation. Let me put it to you this way. When they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter did not say this. Peter didn't say, do, don't do anything. If God saves you, He saves you. If He doesn't save you, He doesn't save you. That's just how God does it, either one way or the other. No, Peter said, no. God is offering this salvation to you. And if you want to receive it, this is what you must do. You must do this. First, you must repent. And second, you must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And I want to break those two things down. The first thing he told them to do was repent. Do you know what it means to repent? Many people have a wrong idea of this word. They associate repentance with feelings of sorrow. In other words, when I say repent, I'm really saying feel bad about something. Come on, now I want you to feel bad about it. No, that's not enough. Feel worse about it right now. Work up those bad feelings. No, no, that's really not what the core of repentance is all about. Although feelings of guilt and remorse and sorrow, they often accompany repentance. But those feelings in and of themselves are not repentance. Repentance means to change, to turn around, to to be looking one direction and then to turn around and to look another direction. It means to change your thinking. And that's exactly what these people had to do. They had thought a certain way about Jesus before. What was the way that that multitude thought about Jesus before? They thought about Him. Reject Him. We don't want Him. Send Him to the cross. We want nothing to do with this man. Now Peter says, I want you to change your mind. Change your thinking about who Jesus is. Once you rejected Him, now I want you to do a 180. Now you should accept Him. They once considered Him worthy of crucifixion. Now they had to turn their thinking around and embrace Jesus as Lord and Messiah. I have to say, I love that word, repent. It's rightly been called the first word of the gospel. When John the Baptist did his work and when he preached to the people of Judea, this is what he said. It's in Matthew chapter 3. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when Jesus began His teaching or preaching ministry, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 4, what did He say? He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now when Peter begins to preach, he says what? Repent. That's the first word of the gospel. Now please understand this. 
Repentance must never be thought of as something we must do before we can come back to God. In other words, it's like this. Do you want to come to God? Yes, I want to come to God. Okay, well, first you have to repent, and then you can come to God. No! Repentance describes what coming to God is. It simply means this. Coming to God means leaving some things behind. You can't turn towards God without turning from the things He is against. If I were to told you, okay, um, you're in Los Angeles, I want you to come to Santa Barbara. I don't need to tell you, now leave Los Angeles and come to Santa Barbara. Because you can't come to Santa Barbara without leaving Los Angeles. Well, it's the same way. You can't really come to God without turning your back on sin, without turning your back on, on wrong ideas about who God is. And listen, the work of repentance is never really done in the life of a Christian, right? It's something that we need to do continually. But there has to be a critical beginning where a person says, no, I will repent. And that's what I love about repentance. It's actually a word of great hope. This is what the message of repentance says. You don't have to go down the way you've been going. You can turn it around. You can change. God will work in you. God will work through you. If you want to change, if you want your life to be different, God will change your life. You come and bring Him your heart of repentance, and God will work that repentance in and through you. So that's the first word Peter said to them. He said, repent. And then the second thing he said, right there, it's in the same verse. He said, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And that was the second thing that Peter said that they must do. And for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, that was an expression of their belief in Jesus and their complete trust in Him. Now please understand this. Baptism, of course, was for them to go and to be immersed in water. It had the idea of being cleansed from sin, just as much as a bath would cleanse somebody from whatever dirt was upon them. But it also had the idea of being reborn, because it's as if they went under the water and they came out to new life. But to be baptized in the name of Jesus was a radical statement of belief and trust in Him. You know, in that day, Jews were not commonly baptized. Only Gentile converts who wish to become Jews. And for these Jewish men and women to be baptized on that day of Pentecost, it showed just how strongly they felt that they needed Jesus. They said, we'll be considered as if we were Gentiles because we believe who this Jesus is and what he wants us to do in our life. My friends, please understand, it's not going under the water itself that does the work. If a person does not have the faith in Jesus, the faith that sort of supports and gives the reality to the physical work of baptism, the spiritual reality behind you can dunk a person a thousand times in a pool, right? But that doesn't necessarily give them faith. No, no, but a person has that faith and then expresses it through that powerful work of baptism. It's as if God is saying, yes, I receive that person's faith. I give them new life. I wash away their sins. And he said, Peter, essentially when he said, be baptized, he said, I want you to believe and I want you to do something about your belief. Be baptized on this day. And then he said something really wonderful and remarkable. Look at it in verse 39. He said, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, 
as many as will call, or as many as the Lord our God will call. As they repented, as they demonstrated faith and obedience and baptism, the gift of the Holy Spirit would be given to them just as it was given to the original group of disciples. And Peter also specifically said that this promise of the Holy Spirit would be given to all who believe in the succeeding generations, all who are afar off. And then it says finally there in verse 40, that with many other words he testified and exhorted them. In other words, he was saying, listen, you can have this, you can receive this, and we can just see Peter and the other apostles, for that matter, doing that deep soul work, working with people, and it was a glorious thing, because look at the great result that happened in verse 41. Then those who gladly received this word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Isn't that amazing? Staggering! The the day began and there was about 120 followers of Jesus. By the time the day ended, there were about 3,120 disciples of Jesus. It's amazing. In one day, but it shows you what the power of the Spirit of God to do. That was an amazing harvest of souls. And all those people, all those thousands came in in response to the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's working in signs and in strange things. The Holy Spirit's working through the uh, message of Peter on the day of Pentecost. And most pointedly, the Holy Spirit's working in the lives of those 3,000 who heard and responded. Now, Lehavad says it in verse 41. Those who gladly received his word were baptized. Those who believed on Jesus that day did so gladly. They heard it and they said, it's right, it's true, there's something about it. I can imagine, maybe this morning there's someone listening to me. And honestly, you're not a Christian. You haven't given your life to Jesus Christ. Uh, Maybe you're looking on from afar. Maybe you're thinking about it. Maybe somebody brought you here as a guest this morning. But for whatever reason, you you just recognize, I'm not, I'm not a Christian. Not yet. Well, the first thing I say, I'm glad you're here. I'm really glad that you've come this morning. We welcome you here. And I'm glad that you're listening to me speak right now and, and bring forth the Word of God to you. But one of the ways that you can tell that God is doing a work in your life is if you can receive the Word of God with some gladness. That's one of the things I recognized, right? When I first started hearing the Bible taught, there was something in me that stirred and said, Man, that's right. That's good. I want some of this. This makes sense. Here's a man, he's opening up the book, and it's not a book full of mysteries or secrets. I can understand this, and it speaks to my life. There was a gladness in how I received the Word. I'm telling you, if you haven't yet made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, but you're hearing the Word of God, and you're receiving it with some sense of gladness, God's doing a work in your life. Whether you recognize it or not, He's doing it. And you should ask Him to do more. Just say, God, you're doing something in me. Do more. I'll receive more of it, God, and God will. And he did on that day of Pentecost, right? All to the point where they baptized some 3,000 people. Now, you might be asking a question, how does this work logistically? How do you baptize 3,000 people there on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem? Well, you should know that there were huge resources of water available on the Temple Mount, that there were pools and reservoirs nearby, so that it wasn't difficult to find a place where the baptisms could take place. Matter of fact, you could go to the Temple Mount today and see excavations where they have special places 
where they would have these ceremonial baths. Now, the Jewish people of that day did not actually practice baptisms in those ceremonial baths, but they did a sort of a ceremonial washing. So what they would do is they would have a pool of water and steps going down into it, and then steps going up out of it as well. It was sort of a walk-through ceremonial washing. And I could just see it. All you'd have to do is have somebody there pray for the person and baptize them, actually put them under the water, not just sort of wash themselves in the water. And you could very efficiently do 3,000 people walking through those walk-through baptismal places on that very day on the Temple Mount. Well, they did something like that. But you know, God continues to do such things. One of the things I want to remind you about all the time is that the day of God's great works did not end with the book of Acts. Not by any means. Jesus promised that he would continue to do his great works. And I'm here to tell you, he is continuing to do them. Now, I know this goes a few years back, but, but I was so struck when I read it about 20 years ago, in the year 1990, there was a great summer harvest crusade. You know the harvest crusades that they have down there in Orange County every year? Well, one notable one was held in the summer of 1990, and afterwards there were so many conversions that they had a mass baptism at Corona Del Mar, and they couldn't count how many were baptized. There were so many. But the newspaper estimates in the Los Angeles Times was that it was more than 5,000 people baptized. They called it the largest baptismal service in American history. Now, I don't know if it actually was the largest, but man, it just it blew my mind. 5,000 baptized. You, you read that, you go, that's Book of Acts kind of thing. And it is indeed. God is continuing to do that kind of work. And we should praise Him for it. So now, as we come into verse 42, we're just sort of staggered by this, aren't we? We look at what God did by what He's doing and go, what? This is amazing. What a profound work you've done, Lord. It, it's staggering. But then they had to live their Christian life. Friends, this, this is where many people have the difficulty, is it not? They'll, they'll have a dramatic or a remarkable, profound experience with God. God will deeply touch their heart. Maybe right here in this building, God has or will or He's doing it right now, deeply moving in your heart. But then the service ends, right? And you walk out to your car. And you've got to live that Christian life after that. And it's amazing sometimes how the blessing is lost, right? I, I wonder sometimes all the lost blessing that must be out there in that parking lot. Because for some reason, as people leave the building, by the time they sit down in their car and start it up, it just seems to be gone. Now this is what we understand. That it's not just the critical experience at the moment, which is good, and powerful and never to be despised. But then there's the continuing work of God, right? As somebody once said, and it's sort of a trite saying, but there's some truth to it. It's not how high you bounce, it's how straight you walk, right? Well, here, they bounced really high on the day of Pentecost, right? Now let's take a look at how straight they're going to walk. And this is what we see in verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Friends, that's walking straight. 
This was the foundation of the life of the spiritual vitality of the early church. They continued steadfastly in some certain things. Now now again, I I want to make it plain that, that on the day of Pentecost, that sound of the rushing wind, the tongues of fire, the conversion of 3,000, those were all remarkable events that we would praise God for. But the things described in verse 42, that's the abiding legacy of God's work. They continued steadfastly in certain things. And what were they? Well, the first thing is mentioned right there in verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They relied on the apostles to communicate to them who Jesus was and what he had done. They had just trusted Jesus. Now they wanted to know more. And they relied on the apostles' doctrine to teach them these things. Look, I I need to be a little bit careful here. Because if there's anything you know about me, of course, you just, from here I am, in front of you on Sundays, Wednesdays, whenever, right? You know that I'm a teacher of God's Word. You know that I have a passion to teach God's Word. And I need to be a little bit careful here because sometimes when whatever particular ministry or calling that God has given you in His great big plan, there's a tendency for us to think that it's the most important thing, right? Everybody thinks that way. The, the, the man or the woman who really has a heart for evangelism, that's the most important thing in the church, right? Or, or, or the person who has a heart for missions, you know, right? That's the most important thing in the church. It's just, you know, when, when you've got a hammer in your hand, everything looks like a nail, right? It's just kind of that thinking. Well, I want to be careful and I don't want to imply for a moment that, that, that the teaching and the understanding of God's Word is the only important thing or, or even the most important thing in the church. But I will say this. Aren't you struck by the fact that this is the first thing in the list given to us in the book of Acts? That when they're describing the health of the church, they don't only describe prayer. No, not for excuse me, They don't only describe the teaching of God's Word. Not for a moment. That's not the only thing that goes into a healthy congregational life. No, no, no. But it was the first thing. It's very important. I'm not going to say for a moment, I'm not going to say that it's the most important, even though I have my personal opinions about that. But certainly we can agree on the fact it is very important that they would continue in the Apostles' Doctrine. Listen, good things happen when God's people are in His Word and stay on His Word. When God's Word is exalted and when it's faithfully taught. I'm not going to say that that's the only thing that goes into a healthy congregational life, not by any means, but I do believe it is an essential component. And here we see beginning at the list. Now, I wouldn't blame some of you if you read verse 42 and you say, man, I wish we had the Apostles' Doctrine. Wouldn't that be great if we had Peter and John and and James? And wouldn't it be great if we had those guys to teach us? Man, that was what the church had in the day of Pentecost. And then if you think about it, I've got some really good news for you. We do have the Apostles' Doctrine, do we not? And this is why we teach from the Word of God. This is why I'm not here to give you so much my opinions, my perspectives, this or that. No, what I endeavor to do is to bring you the Apostles' Doctrine. And in that sense, I think that it's important for every teacher of the Bible, for every pastor, to have this basic instinct to be unoriginal. I don't want to bring you original things from the heart or the mind of David Guzik. I want to bring you God's Word. I just want to bring you what the book says. 
And that's, that's the apostles' doctrine. That's our responsibility. But that's not the only thing. Look next in verse 42. It also says that they continued steadfastly in fellowship. For the first time in the book of Acts, a tremendous ancient Greek word is used in the text. And that ancient Greek word is koinonia. And we translate that fellowship. Sometimes we translate it in the New Testament sharing. Sometimes we translate it generosity. Sometimes we translate it communion. It's a big word that actually can't be translated with just one word. It's a big idea. But the essential idea behind that ancient Greek word for koinonia is this. It's association. It's communion. It's fellowship. It's sharing. And that's what we're supposed to do in our Christian lives. We're supposed to share our lives. The Christian life is meant to be full of fellowship, of sharing one with another. That's what God's called us to be and to do. You know, let's face it. There's an aspect of that that makes us uncomfortable. To share our lives means to open ourselves up to people in a way. And you can't open yourselves up to other people without sometimes being hurt by it, right? It's just the way it is. Nevertheless, God commands us to do just this. And there's a lot that we share in the Christian life. We share the same Lord Jesus. We share the same guide for life. We share the same love for God. We share the same desire to worship Him. We share the same struggles. We share the same victories. We share the same job of living for Him. We share the same joy of communicating the gospel. We share a lot in the Christian life. But yet I think there's a constant tendency, maybe you could call it a temptation, for us to live our Christian lives in isolation, right? To not connect ourselves with other Christians. Friends, I want to challenge you. If your life is not connected on a Christian spiritual level with the lives of other Christians, then you need to talk to God about it and ask Him to do some transforming work in your life. For two reasons. First of all, it's not healthy for you to live your Christian life in isolation. And number two, it's not good for you to live your Christian life. God has blessings for you in this koinonia, in this fellowship, in this sharing. But listen, you know how it's very possible, right? It is very possible for you to sit here in this room with hundreds of people and for you to still be all alone. It shouldn't be like that. And it doesn't have to be like that for you. God intends for them to be a fellowship, a sharing of the life. There's a lot of different ways it can happen. Right? It can happen very spontaneously with you just, just getting to know the people sitting right next to you. If you don't know them, they're probably nice people. You could probably just get to know them. You, you could just decide after this we'll go out for coffee or something like that. It, it'll take a little bit of boldness on your part to do that. It could happen in other ways where you come to a midweek thing where maybe there's not quite as many people or get involved in one of the many sort of special groups and special ministry groups that we have around. You can get involved in a ministry. Many people have found great fellowship when, when they get involved in the children's ministry and suddenly they're part of a team, right? And there's a sharing of the life, a sharing of the work with that team. You could get involved in one of the home groups that we're going to be launching in just a couple of months. That's another place where lives are shared and it's great. But you need this and I need this. Our lives need to be connected with one another. We need this koinonia. The early church had it. 
third thing. They continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread. I, I point that out because it wasn't just breaking of bread as if they ate together, although I'm sure they did that, right? You don't share much of life with other people without eating with them sometime or another. But no, no, this is emphatic. This refers to their celebration of communion together because in the ancient Greek, the wording is like this, the breaking of bread, which refers back to communion, right? Where they would break the bread and said, this represents to us the broken body of Jesus. And they would drink the cup where they would said, this represents his poured out blood for us. And they did it often as they met together because they wanted to remember what Jesus had done for them on the cross. Friends, that is essential. Don't you think it's kind of fascinating that they lived so close to the time when Jesus was crucified, yet they still deliberately remembered it over and over again? I mean, they didn't want to forget. It had just happened a couple months before that Jesus was crucified. And yet they said, don't forget, don't forget. How much more should we, who, who live now thousands of years separated from what Jesus did, should we deliberately remind ourselves again and again and again, let's break the bread together, let's drink the cup together, let's remember His broken body and His poured out blood. That is our salvation and not anything that we would accomplish for ourselves. The breaking of bread. And then fourth. It says there that they continued steadfastly in prayers. Now, this doesn't just mean that they were a group of people that were prayerful. I mean, it does mean that, but it also means more of them. Because again, and I don't mean to get too subtle with the original language or something, but a commentator I really respect, a guy named James Montgomery Boyce, he pointed out something very helpful in this passage. He pointed out the fact that it actually what it says here in the ancient Greek is that they continued steadfastly in the prayers. And the idea behind the the is that it's the gathered prayers of the body of Christ. In other words, they met together for prayer and worship and, well, church, if you want to call it that. This is what they did. They gathered together for common worship and prayers. That was the fourth essential part of what they did. So when you put it all together, this is what we read in verse 24, or, uh, excuse me, verse 42. It says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers or in the prayers. And do you understand, friends? Everything we read about the power and the glory of the early church, it flows from this foundation of the word, fellowship, remembrance of what Jesus did on the cross, and prayer and worship. It all flows from that. This is where it comes from. This was the spiritual power of the ancient church to simply do those things in Acts 2.42. Now, I'll just ask it very pointedly. I don't think I need to belabor this point at all. Are these things real in your life? If they're not, there's a lack. You know, oftentimes people come to the church or I've had them come to me with great life problems, big things going on in their life and sometimes real, you know, difficulties, real counseling needs and this is a great, great needs going on. I've often found that a very helpful place to begin is say, how is your life doing with these four things? Now, I don't mean to apply for a moment that if you're doing these four things, that you'll have no problems. No, I'm not trying to say that at all. And I think it's possible that you could be doing all these four things just fine and that you would still have great difficulty. But what I have often found is that people whose life is profoundly messed up are not doing these four things. 
Again, I'm not going to say it's always that way, but isn't that a place to begin? Isn't that a handy checklist to work through? Am I in the Word? Am I in fellowship with other believers? Am I remembering and keeping at the center what Jesus did for me on the cross? And I am in worship and prayer with other believers. Friends, this is it. This is what our lives require. Now, please understand, this is the model church. It's not a perfect church, as we're going to find out. You're not going to get more than another couple chapters in the book of Acts where you're going to see it is not a perfect church by any means. But it is a model church and something we should learn. Coming now to verse 43 where we read, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And that was evidence of the power of God. This fear that came upon every soul. One of the greatest, most powerful works that God can do in the human heart is to give that person a true reverent honoring of the Lord. And that's what we're happening, and not the least, because as it says there in verse 43, many signs and wonders were done. This was evidence of the power of God. And I believe that when God is at work, lives will be touched in miraculous ways. Coming on now to verse 44. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. They were together. They had all things in common. Now with this immediate influx of more than 3,000 believers, many of those 3,000 who came would have been pilgrims. They would have been visitors to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. That They would have stayed in Jerusalem. They wouldn't have had jobs there. And so the family of Christians had to share if they were to survive. They had to hold all things into common. And so they were together. You should know that the Jewish people of that day, and, and even to this day in the Middle East, they have a tremendous custom of hospitality. And in those days it was expressed this way, that at feast times when all these visitors came in from all around the Roman Empire, that you received them into your homes so that they could stay with you. That was a very strong ethic. And so the Christians took this tremendous ethic of feast time hospitality and they extended it beyond the feast. They said, come, live with us, share with us, we'll be together. And I should observe this at least quickly, that we should not regard this as an early experiment in communism. Now I'll tell you why this was not an early experiment in communism. First of all, because it was voluntary, right? That's a huge difference, right? There's one thing that's saying, well, uh, share with your neighbor. You should share with your neighbor. Okay, well, I'll choose to share with your neighbor. It's another thing saying, give me what you have or I'll kill you. That's a whole different thing. <laughs> No, this was not an experiment in communism because it was voluntary, because it also seems, to the best of our knowledge, to have been temporary. There's no evidence that this was the ongoing condition of the Jerusalem church for years and years after this. And then thirdly, you could say this, and I hope I'm not being disrespectful when I say it, that you could say that it was flawed. It was flawed to the extent that the Christian church in Jerusalem always seemed to be in need of financial support from other churches. That's a good thing that we're going to see Paul doing later in the book of Acts. He's often raising money for the support of the Christians in Jerusalem. And so I told to that third point tentatively. I can't say absolutely that it was a flawed experiment. But at the moment, at the time, it was perfectly suited, was it not? 
This is what the Christians had to do. And they responded gloriously, even to the point, verse 45, where it says that they sold their possessions and their goods and divided them among all as many as had need. The power of God was evident there because Jesus had become more important to them than their possessions. Friends, that's where the power of God needs to be evident in our lives. Is it not? Now, God has blessed us in this community. What a glorious place we live, is it not? And I tell you, what, what, what tremendous resources God has given to many people in this congregation. Now, I'll just say this. We need to pray constantly that we have our hearts in the right place and that Jesus is always more important to us than our possessions. And that we'll simply do whatever Jesus tells us to do with our possessions. Just come to that place. Just say, Jesus, I'll do what you want me to do with them. Just as you would with any other thing in your life, right? Shouldn't we just say Jesus is Lord of our entire lives? And what he tells us to do with our possessions, or with our time, or, or with our effort, or with our families, or this. It belongs to you, Jesus. That's exactly what they did in the early church. And it was evidence of God's work. So now, verse 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Isn't that beautiful? Don't you just like reading those words? It sounds like life the way God meant us to live it. I believe it is. They continued daily with one accord in the temple. That is that they met together for what we might call church, but they were just worship services. They met together at the temple courts. And then they broke bread from house to house. This business about remembering Jesus through the bread and through the cup, that wasn't just for church services, but they did it all the time. And this is how it's supposed to be. The church is meant to worship God and learn His Word together. God wants us to share our lives one with another. And that's exactly what they were doing in the early church. They were praising God. They were having favor with all the people. That The Christian experience, you could describe it as daily, as joyful, as simple, just the way that it should be for us. Friends, I'll put it to you this way. The early church wasn't perfect. It wasn't perfect. But it was good. And might I say this, it was very good. And that's how it is to be among us. Oh no, nobody is expecting for a moment that we would have a perfect church family, a perfect community, that there'd never be problems, that there'd never be frictions. No, no, we don't expect that for a moment. But we believe that as we put our focus on these things that the early church put their focus on, that it would be good and that God would do this. Did you see that last phrase of the chapter? It's beautiful. And the Lord added to the church daily those were being saved. Wouldn't you say that that's God's prescription for church growth? If we take care to follow the pattern of the book of Acts, of verse 42 through verse 47, God will take care of growing the church himself. It's his church. He'll add to it. Our place is just to keep our focus on those essential things, but to let the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit reign. Friends, that's what I want to do. Don't you? Then let's do it together as a church family. And let's pray that God would do that right now among us.